Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. What's up, friends? Get yourself ready because I have a beefy interview lined up for you. Um, Get ready to learn. For all of you note takers out there, get your pens, get your pencils, get your paper, get ready. I have Dr. Eric Belkavage on the show today, and this guy can talk thyroid. That's why I wanted him to come on the show. I'm never, when when I... think about who I want to interview for the show. I have like a very specific thing in mind. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. I always want somebody who can come and like drop the hammer on knowledge rather than just kind of like echo chamber the same shit that I'm saying all the time. This guy delivers. Eric is a licensed chiropractor. He's a certified nutrition specialist, a functional medicine practitioner. He runs a functional medicine clinic in Pennsylvania. And he's really made it his mission to change the way medicine looks at hypothyroidism. He spends a lot of time teaching. He he also still runs his clinic, so he spends a lot of time with his patients, but also a lot of time teaching. And I'll link up to his um his podcast, the Thyroid Answers podcast, as well as this YouTube channel where you can learn a lot more. I do want to give you a heads up that today's episode is really not Thyroid 101. So this is really next level concepts. If you're a practitioner, a provider, uh, this is a great episode for you because we're going to get into some some deep stuff. I'm definitely in that headspace right now as I'm running and teaching the Functional Nutrition Academy, which is my year-long training for functional medicine providers. Um, I'm I'm definitely in that mind space when I was asking Eric questions, but I want to remind you that we do have other episodes about the thyroid. So episode 49, why you need to test your thyroid and how to do it. Episode 66, Thyroid Health and Hashimoto's with Dr. Becky Campbell. Episode 125, Thyroid Health, Gluten and Hashimoto's. We'll link those up in the show notes for you. Um, if you if you feel a little overwhelmed with this talk, go back and kind of listen to um, some more of the basic concepts and ideas as it relates to thyroid health. Um, but then come back to this one because it's filled with such good stuff. If you've been struggling with hypothyroid or Hashimoto's for a long time, this episode will most likely provide a lot of answers for you that you have not gotten elsewhere. So I'm so excited for you to listen. Would love your feedback. Um, love any aha moments. Come hit me up on Instagram and and share your thoughts, not in my DMs, but in my post, please and thank you. And then finally, I want to say, even if you don't have Hashimoto's, if you have any type of autoimmunity, really pay attention to what Eric is saying. Really pay attention to how he's speaking and communicating about the immune system, because there's some such golden nuggets here and kind of like 
what what starts, whether it's Hashimoto's or another type of autoimmune condition, what starts the process, right? What starts the process and how can we unravel that? Um, before I hit play, I want to shout out uh, one of our show sponsors, Coyote River Hemp Co. Their products, there's hemp uh, products I've been using for years, uh, for about two years now, maybe three years. What is time anyway, really, right? Um and since we're talking about autoimmunity, since we're talking about Hashimoto's, CBD is one of the things that I personally use to manage autoimmunity. That's a question that I get asked a tremendous amount. And um, I, I'm actually, at the time of recording, kind of coming out of a little bit of a mini flare. I don't, I don't really, I think it, the, the stress kind of caught up to me. And so what I've been experiencing is fatigue and pain. That's typically how things manifest for me. And the CBD, taking higher levels, higher doses of CBD, I won't talk about dosing on the show because it's extremely individualized. And I tend to recommend that people start slow, start low and like kind of titrate their way up. Um, But it's been very, very helpful for me to manage um, any type of autoimmune flare that I'm experiencing. And I know so many of you listeners have deal with pain, deal with fatigue in the body, deal with anxiety. It's a really useful tool. So you can head to their website. I will link it up in the show notes. Use code FUNK10. That will save you 10% off of any of your purchases there. And um, highly, highly recommend this local company. So check them out. All right, Eric, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk all things thyroid. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. All right. So I have, you know, this is definitely not going to be like a thyroid 101 episode. We've done those a couple of times. I really want to dive into some of the things that I think you are, um, that you really excel at and you talk about that not a lot of people are talking about. I think sometimes we can get little bit caught in echo chambers with a lot of this stuff. And you have a very unique perspective on the thyroid, in my opinion. When when I first started this podcast, it was a lot of nutrition, food, food as medicine principles. And as my practice evolved, we started talking more about labs. And I think it's just a rise of popularity and functional medicine. And maybe my audience is, is shifting in a way. But now what I'm seeing is it's almost like we've pendulum swung away from food and there's this like hyper fixation on labs. And any time I post any any question, any call for a question about the thyroid, all the questions that come flooding in are always lab-based. And I, I worry that sometimes we're taking a bit of a myopic view, um, like we're looking to change the lab rather than change the physiology. Like if we can just get the labs to look good, then everything's going to be fine. Um, and I think that the, the, the thyroid panel can be so wonderful because it gives us some insight into like where the hiccup might be, but it doesn't really necessarily always answer the question why. And, you know, when we do root cause medicine, I think what once sometimes people can, if they find an issue with the thyroid, they're like, oh, we found the root cause. We found the issue. But your approach is really th- thyroid physiology is responding to something else. Right. And so I would love for you to kind of just take it away and riff on that concept because it's not, I don't think it's being discussed that widely. No, I think both in allopathic medicine and to some degree functional medicine, we've kind of got lost in trying to play whack a mole medicine with lab values. And, you know, in the allopathic model, it's say just give T4 
in maybe an integrative model it's just normalized t4 and t3 <clears throat> and in in functional medicine i see kind of the greenwashing of medicine where functional medicine practitioners say well the medications obviously aren't aren't the problem we need to give more selenium we need to meet give more cofactors and improve the conversion uh, assuming that the body is broken and the thyroid somehow <clears throat> you know forgot how to work so I think if we think about what's going on in the thyroid physiology there's I think I think the primary camp is that the gland becomes dysfunctional and hypothyroidism doesn't begin until <clears throat> until there is a gland that can't make enough thyroid hormone anymore. And then the solution is, is that, hey, we're just going to give T4 to normalize TSH and as much thyroid hormone, we just, we'll just put as much thyroid hormone into the bloodstream that, that we need to suppress TSH. Um, assuming that the amount of thyroid hormone in the bloodstream is the thing. When in reality, the thyroid hormone in the bloodstream is just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's just one piece of thyroid physiology. The production of thyroid hormone by the gland is one piece of thyroid physiology. But really, all the cells and tissues have the ability to self-regulate thyroid hormone. And I think that's forgotten. Even in functional medicine, uh, I'm concerned that we miss that concept. And so my perspective is that thyroid hypothyroid symptoms, hyperthyroid symptoms are the result of too much or too little thyroid hormone at the tissue, at the cell level. And so we then need to ask the question, if we know that that's what's driving the symptoms is too much or too little at the tissue level, then what's happening, right? Why would a cell increase or decrease the amount of T3 inside the cell? What would be the driver there? And in normal situations, what we call homeostatic regulation, where we make enough energy to do everything we need to do, we want higher levels of T3 in the cell because T3, when it binds to receptors in the mitochondria and, and the nucleus, it stimulates protein production, enzyme production, hormone production, neurotransmitter production, cell membranes. It does all these things that, the, that we want, right? We want to feel good. We want to have good skin, good hair, good digestion, good sex hormones, and we want to look good. We want to have good metabolism. And uh, when we have plenty of T3 inside the cell, the cell... T3 also can bind to receptors that turns off certain aspects of cellular physiology. And namely, it turns off the cell defense response or the cell inflammatory response or what sometimes we call the cell danger response. But when there's, that's great when we're in a low stress homeostatic state. But when we have excessive amount of stress that's impacting our cells, whether it's through uh, toxins or hypoxia, which is low oxygen, whether it's via organisms or trauma or something or a combination of those things that create excessive stress response, the cell can start to perceive danger. Hey, there's too much stress. I can't manage it all. And I need to protect myself just like people are. And so the cell then needs to shut down normal cell metabolism, the, the production of all these great things, decrease energy to do those things, and increase the energy to ramp up the cell defense mechanisms, inflammation, uh, drive the immune system. And unfortunately, that doesn't make us feel good. But that's what's 
but the cell's not broken. It's doing what it should do to defend itself. And I often say that if you were, you know, a lot of my patients are like, I, I don't, maybe they don't understand. And I'm like, if you, if you were cooking for your child, right? Your child's sitting in the kitchen, you got four burners on, you're making a big meal, everybody's coming over, you're cleaning the house, you're doing wash all the same time. Um, and somebody broke in and started attacking your child. Are you going to continue to cook? Right? Most people would say no. Are you going to take time to turn off the burners, pack everything up in nice glass Tupperware? No. Are you going to uh, try and throw a load of wash in while somebody's attacking your child? Uh, probably not. Are you going to go try and take a nap? No. Are you going to go have sex? No. So all those other things that we consider normal household duties get neglected because there's a more important role, and that's protecting your child. Right? Cells are the same way. They are trying to protect themselves, and they're trying to you know, fend off whatever the threat is. And the dimmer switch that does that is thyroid hormone. And so that's what I see as the prime driver of of driving a hypothyroid state. And I we refer to that as cellular or tissue hypothyroidism. It's not a new concept. It's nothing I invented. It's been talked about in the literature for almost 40 years, but we've just kind of ignored, I think, because in the conventional model, we don't know what to do about it. And even to some degree in functional medicine, people don't know what to do about it. It's my perception that when we have that chronic cell stress response, one of the things those cells do is they release inflammatory chemicals to warn or wake up the immune system and say, hey, we got a problem here. I need some help. Send those same signaling molecules out to the other cells and tissues to say, hey, we got a problem going on here. And initially it can be local, just in a few cells, just in a, in a tissue, maybe in a few tissues. But if that cell stress response can be, becomes chronic, these cells in danger release signaling molecules called DAMPs and PAMPs. And these are damp pieces of the damaged cell that go out into the bloodstream to say to the immune system, hey, I'm the tissue being damaged, come help me. And we, they can also release PAMPs, which are pathogen-associated molecular proteins, which are pieces of the bacteria, the virus, the organism that's creating the potential problem. And it sends pieces of that out so the immune system knows, hey, this is the thing you're looking for. Find this thing and go after it. And what's interesting is that's part of the normal immune response, right? That's part of what the immune system, of what normally upregulates the immune system. And the interesting thing is the science seems to show that thyroid cells themselves have receptors for these damage-associated proteins and these pathogen-associated proteins. And so when these things bind to the thyroid cells, it can actually initiate the thyroiditis that we see in people who develop hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. The thyroiditis that develops before we see thyroid antibodies develop. So we kind of look at this thyroiditis, this destruction of the gland, maybe Hashimoto's as the problem, like the immune system's out of control. And I think we, in many cases, we can change that thought process, say the thyroid gland is trying to slow down the metabolism globally to slow the process down, ramp up the defense. And if you had to turn off thyroid hormone in one cell or one tissue, maybe you do it locally. But when you have to turn down metabolism globally, the best way to do it is to turn off the gland. And so the thyroid cells turn into themselves, turn into immune 
like cells. They don't even need the immune system to actually create the damage. They do it themselves, and then they spew out signaling molecules, which actually attracts the immune system into the thyroid gland that then creates more of the thyroiditis or the inflammation or damage to the thyroid gland. Once you've had a bunch of that damage and the immune system what we call the TH1 side of the immune system starts to communicate with the other part of the immune system, the TH2 side of the immune system, then we start to see the upregulation of antibodies and somebody says, oh, you have Hashimoto's. That's what's causing your immune system's out of control and that's what's damaging your immune system or damaging your thyroid gland. But the literature doesn't seem to show that that's the case. In what the literature is starting to show is thyroglobulin antibodies uh, don't cause any damage to the thyroid gland at all. And TPO antibodies cause a very small amount, very minor amount, maybe less than 5% of the damage to the thyroid gland. Most of it's done by the, by the, the invading lymphocytic tissue that's coming in to damage the tissue, which has actually many times been invited by the thyroid cells themselves. So I look at the autoimmune damage that occurs is not caused by the immune system out of control or these antibodies that are damaging the gland, but the body adapting to change. Hey, we've got to slow the metabolism down globally. And so we decrease the production of the gland. Unfortunately, it doesn't make us feel good. Well, I want to highlight that because, um, you know, Hashimoto's, I'm sure you see it all of the time. And it's, I think it's just becoming more and more prevalent which is one, and it's one of the main causes of hypothyroidism, or at least that's the theory. Um, and it's an autoimmune condition. And as somebody with autoimmunity, I've spent the better part of, I don't know, six years grappling with this idea that my immune system is overactive. It's out of balance. It's out of control to use your terminology. And at worst it's attacking me, uh, because that's really the, the story of both conventional and functional medicine. And so your, that, that approach is a very different way to look at what's happening in the body. It's not so much as like, Hey, your body, your immune system doesn't know what it's doing. It's out to attack you. But instead it's like, that's kind of an appropriate response for, for what's happening. Maybe. Yeah. At least in the early phase right now, when you look at the theories of autoimmunity, I think there's eight or nine kind of thought processes that go on molecular mimicry and a number of other ones. But this is one that I don't think people are considering for the most part, is the fact that maybe the immune system is being directed to do this. Maybe the immune system is trying to protect you, but it can't identify what is creating all of that stress response. So it's just trying to slow down the metabolism to give it time to address the threat. And if you think about it, why? what would the benefit be of reducing the metabolism globally or metabolism of the cell? Well, if a cell has a bacteria or a virus in it and you increase the metabolism of the cell, that allows the bacteria or the virus or the organism to replicate. If you, inc if you maintain a high met uh, metabolism of the cell and bring more glucose into a cell, now you're fueling, you're providing fuel for an organism. By slowing down the metabolism of the cell and walling off the cell, reducing oxygen coming into the cell, you can still increase the the free radical formation, which is beneficial in killing the threat, but you limit the amount of oxidative damage that occurs. So you actually protect the cell. By slowing down the metabolism of the cell and not producing, you know, converting amino acids into proteins, now the threat doesn't have those available amino acids or these protein structures to use for its benefit. And so there's so many reasons why reducing metabolism is important when there's a threat response that 
you ha it, it almost forces you when you take a step back and say, hmm, maybe the immune system is doing exactly what it should do. At least in the beginning, it's still a properly regulated, it's an immune system that's being still being properly regulated, it's not necessarily out of control. It's just trying to figure out where the problem is and address it. And how do I slow down the metabolism while I while I do that. And I think the, the key to that process is if it's just an immune system that's totally out of control, you're doomed because what's going to bring it back into control? If it's an immune system that's not out of control, then if we reduce the threat, if we reduce the stress, we should see the immune system calm down. And guess what? That's what we see in not only in autoimmune thyroid conditions, but we see it in other conditions as well. So if that's the case, then we have to kind of go back to like, well, what's, what's causing the stress, right? Like that's, that's really, it sounds to me like that's really like what we need to be doing, um, is figuring out wh where the, where the original stressor is coming from. So do you find that that's what you often do clinically with your patients? That's what I do all the time with my patients. So let's I mean, talk about that because I, that's the, that's the biggest needle mover of, of all time. Before Eric drops the hammer on some really great information, I do want to let you guys know, this is very exciting. If you've been listening to the show for a hot minute, you know that I have a love affair with Acromantia, one of the keystone species in our guts, the bacteria that's really responsible for making the gut strong and healthy, it prevents leaky gut. It is also plays a role in our metabolic health. I run a stool test on myself about once a year just to... I don't know, kind of stay ahead of the game, see what's going on at the level of the gut. I know that what's happening at the level of my gut influences the rest of my entire body. And in somebody with autoimmunity, I take that really seriously. So the last time I ran a stool test on myself, I saw that my acromancia levels were low. And I was like, ugh. So I had to put into place the same information and the same strategies that I share with my clients and with all of you. And I started doubling down on my red polyphenol. Specifically, I use Organifi red juice powder. And happy to report, got a new stool test back last week and my acromancia levels are back. They're in nice, health, nice healthy range, preferentially feeding them the foods that they eat really seemed to benefit them. So I wanted to share that with you. I was stoked about it. Some of you gut geeks might also be stoked about it. So as a reminder, Organifi is a sponsor of the podcast. You can head to their website, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com and use code FUNK to save 20% off all of their products, not just the red juice, that happens to be my personal fave, all of the products. My brother just came over yesterday and I was pounding my red juice and Hattie was pounding hers and he's like, what are you guys drinking? Kool-Aid. <laughs> so I gave him some. He loved it. He's a super fan now. So get some. Right. So, you know, labs are great because they tell us a story of where somebody's at in the moment, right? And when it comes to thyroid panels, you know, that's a great you, you know, that's where everybody starts taking a look. Like, do I have a thyroid problem? Well, you can have thyroid physiology adaptation or allostasis, this altered thyroid physiology, and have totally normal lab values in the beginning because it's a cellular issue, not a tissue issue. So labs are important. But 
when I first meet with somebody, I want to look at a comprehensive metabolic panel. And that means different things to different people. You and I would probably have a, be more in agreement with what that means. But we want to look at not just a TSH and a T4, because TSH can be impacted by so many things and make it look falsely normal, falsely low, falsely elevated. So you want to look at a full thyroid panel, TSH, T4, T3, free T4, free T3, T3 uptake, antibodies, reverse T3. And we want to see, is there... What does the body favor? Is the body favoring a conversion of T4 to T3 or T4 to reverse T3? And if I see that that's the case, I note it. Then I want to see, is there any type of um, inflammatory mechanism that might drive that process? So I'll look at their inflammatory markers. Now, the only way you're going to identify that is if you've actually run inflammatory markers, right? So you got to look at CRP and homocysteine, fibrinogen, ferritin, uric acid, just to name a few. And then after I've looked at the thyroid panel and I've seen, okay, now I have inflammatory mechanisms. Now I want to see what systems and tissues might indicate a tissue hypothyroid state. So I want to look at their blood sugar regulation because T3 is critical to regulating blood sugar. If you have high insulin resistance, if you have high fasting blood sugar, if you have uh, ele yeah, if you have elevated levels of ins fasting insulin, you likely have a level of tissue hypothyroidism going because you need T3 to drive and support all those glute transporters. Um, I'll look at liver function? Do I have indications at the liver that there may be a tissue hypothyroid state? And we look at, you know, cholesterol is one of the best markers to look at to say, hey, if cholesterol and LDL are elevated, it's a good sign that we don't have a sufficient T3 at the liver because you need T3 at the liver for the, the LDL and HDL to dock at the liver, especially LDL. If you don't have enough T3, LDL can't dock, you can't dump off cholesterol. So cholesterol builds up. Everybody would prefer to just give everybody a statin, but that's, we're not fixing the problem, we're just band-aiding and masking numbers. And then I'll take a look at renal function. Do we see a decreased glomerular filtration rate, maybe an increased creatinine or BUN that may say, hey, we have decreased thyroid hormone levels at the, that tissue. So I'll look at those tissues and see, do I have a pattern? What systems seem to be inf impacted? And then I want to take a look at their signs and symptoms. Do what system, signs and symptoms do they have that may indicate whether they have problems in the labs or not, tissue-based problems, which tissues are being impacted to kind of correlate with what I see. And then as you're, I think the, the real question you're asking is like, but then how do we identify what's driving it? And that's where somebody's health history and timeline come into the picture. And somebody's timeline is mo probably the most important thing that the patient can provide you because you can see the problem developing over time. And so you look at somebody's health history and you'd look for things that may create an excessive stress, stress response over time. Many times people have an acute stress they start having health problems and that's easy, right? Oh, I got divorced. After divorce, everything kicked in. The divorce maybe was the excessive stress response. But really, I think for most people, it's not an acute issue, but a, it's just chronic, long-term, excessive stress response. And I call it the load. And I usually use the analogy if I had two cinder blocks and a board going across those two cinder blocks and life stress was like five pound weights, you know, poor gut function, C-section, not vaginally delivered, 
uh, bottle fed, not breast fed, antibiotics, and you just keep stressing, putting these five pound weights on the board, at some point the board's going to break. But if the board capacity was 100 pounds and I put 105 pounds on, which weight caused the board to break? Most people say it's the last board, it's the last weight you put on. So that must be the problem. And hey, it, it's probably gluten, right? I took away gluten, I didn't get any better. Well, that's because there is a whole bunch of other stressors that have been cumulated over time that pushed you beyond your threshold of what you can tolerate. And once that board's broken, I can take the five pound weight off, the board is still there broken. I now not only have to reduce that five pound weight, and take it off there. But I got to take the other 100 pounds off too so that I can rebuild the board and make it bigger and stronger before I can use it again to stack weight on. When we look at somebody's health history, we can see typically the problem developing. All the antibiotics. Then they started having some GI problems. Then they started having hormone problems. Then they started having fatigue. And then they started having you know, acne problems. Then they started having depression. And then by the time they're hitting their 30s, now I've got a thyroid problem. Uh, no, now your gland is dysfunctional but all of those issues, diet, lifestyle, disrupted sleep, past trauma, emotional issues, those are the things that created the excessive stress response and it just took time. And now we've got to almost deconstruct the whole process and reverse engineer the process to start making sure that all the available stress that we can get off that person, we, we do that so that the danger response goes away. I think there was a, a famous philosopher named Donkey who's talking to Shrek and uh, says that, you know, uh, ogres are like onions. You have to peel back the layers, right? And um, people are the same way. Most people identify with their, their problem, whether it's a thyroid, a diabetic issue, a gut issue, starting the moment they're diagnosed. In reality, it's usually been a process that's been occurring for years and years and years. So what I try and do with my patients is help them understand, hey, this has been going on since you were probably two, four, six, 10, 15. And these are some of the underlying issues that created the problem back then. And now we've got to make sure we reduce those stressors and then fix the systems that have become compromised. We don't have to manipulate thyroid hormone. The thyroid hormone, as the danger response goes away and the tissues start to heal, the thyroid physiology starts to shift back into normal physiology at least that's what i've seen in my in my practice and people need to wind up re having to reduce their dose or eliminate their medications because they're too much because now not only are they absorbing more medication because their gi tracts healthier they're actually their thyroid gland is actually if they still have one uh, is now starting to heal and recover and it's starting to actually produce more hormone in your opinion at what point does it make sense to consider medication well, almost, uh, if somebody's in a point where in the, they're in crisis mode, I, I don't, I think they need to maintain uh, some level of support. But I, I, what I try and do with my patients, I'm not a medical doctor, so what I try and do with my patients is guide them and say, look, you need, we need the least amount of thyroid hormone here to keep you safe. And based on your signs, your symptoms, and your labs, we're going to probably need to reduce this dose over time. And so I'll watch their signs and symptoms. And typically when you start helping somebody and they start feeling and functioning better, signs and symptoms are improving. And then they'll hit a plateau where, hey, I stopped losing weight again. Now I'm anxious. I have insomnia. I'm irritable. I'm moody. 
and now you go and take a look at their labs again and their TSH is really dropped low, their T4 is high, um, and their reverse T3 is going back up again. And so you can take a look at those things and say, okay, we got to reduce the dose. It's just too much thyroid hormone now. And most doctors that I work with, once they see the lab changes, they're pretty willing although a little cautious in the beginning, they're pretty willing at this point to say, okay, let's let's start tightering it down. Do you see, is, is reverse T3 something that you see elevated often? Like if like use it as like a percentage of clients, like in what percentage do you see that, that elevated? Uh, about 60 to 70%. No kidding? No kidding. Mm-hmm. So it all depends on, on the client, but pa- patients that are not on thyroid hormone medication, but think they have a thyroid problem, um, it's not unusual to see it elevated. Now, the ranges are different. I think the lab reference range is 24. Yeah. I think the optimal range is, uh, that I use is 18. Um, and you can't just look at the reverse T3 just on its own, which is what some people wind up doing. You have to look at it in context with what the T4 and free T4 values are and what the T3 and free T3 values are. Because if you just look at T3, you might say, well, it's normal, but what's my T4? If your T4 is low, then your starting product T4 is already low. So you're already going to have lower levels of reverse T3 and T3 because your, your starting point's low. And so you have to look at the whole thing in context, but I see it elevated in, in a lot of people. Um, and for those that it's not elevated, but they have signs and symptoms of cell or tissue hypothyroidism, um, then I also look at the ratio of T3 and free T3 to reverse T3 to see what the see what the body's favoring. Say that one more time, that last part. So I'll look the at ratio. the- Yeah, the ratio. So T3 to reverse T3, if you just take, simply just divide T3 by reverse T3, optimally like to see that it's kind of been established that that level should be somewhere greater than 10 optimally. Um, and the free T3 to reverse T3 ratio should be less than, it should be greater than 0.2. Um, if you just, you know, simple math, simple math equation. So uh, if I see that the ratios are down and the person's feeling fantastic and they have no signs and symptoms, I'm not really worried about it. But if they're symptomatic and the ratios are down, uh, then I then I'm more concerned, especially if there's inflammatory markers, especially if they have signs and symptoms. And I'm saying, hey, look, the, this this body is favoring the deactivation, not the activation, and that corresponds with what I'm seeing in my patient. And the important thing is when we take a look at labs is people look at labs for H or L on a lab report, assuming <laughs> right that the lab value is a healthy range. The lab reference range is like two standard deviations away from the mean. So that like is, encompasses 95 to 97% of the population, right? Which if you look outside your window, 95 to 97% of the population is overweight, obese, and chronically ill. So I don't think that's a good ratio to compare yourself to. The optimal range is closer to like 0.5 standard deviations away from the, the median. And so kind of like the A range compared to the F range. And so that's an important thing for people to take into into mind. Medical doctors don't use that range, that optimal range, because their job is to prescribe a surgery, a medical intervention or treatment because you're at a crisis mode. Not because you're in a low, low a level of dysfunction, but because it, you're, 
it requires a crisis inter or acute intervention. So they don't use, you, otherwise you'd have everybody, as soon as they got out of that 0.5 standard deviations, they'd be throwing medications at everybody and that would not be this right situation. So I think doctors are doing using that range and I think that's appropriate. But for us in functional medicine, I have to think if we're trying to get somebody healthy, we have to and that's a whole nother discussion on its own is like, what does health mean? Because <laughs> it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But to finish that con the conversation on labs, a lab value could be normal, regardless of its optimal range or lab reference range, and be totally appropriate. If all your lab values are within the normal range and you feel fantastic, those lab values are normal and appropriate. Um, but a lab value could be normal and totally inappropriate, right? TSH is kind of the D1 screening test and in allopathic medicine, it's often argued it's the one and only test you ever need to use to monitor thyroid physiology. Well, we know that medications, age, and inflammation, which is the most chronic thing we deal with in this country specifically, inflammation will suppress TSH. So, you can't look at a TSH and say on its own, it's all by itself, unless you look at the context of everything else. What's my patient's signs and symptoms? What do the rest of the lab show? A TSH loses its value. If you have inflammatory markers that are elevated, that TSH has lost its value to monitor thyroid physiology because the inflammation will suppress it. The other thing we can do is we can look at labs and sometimes people get concerned because they have an abnormal lab value it's high or it's low and they go, oh my gosh. And in medicine, many times we're trying to suppress that or bring that value artificially back into range. Like, hey, pound my chest, I've done the right thing. Instead of saying, hey, not only that lab value is abnormal, but you know what? That's great because it's totally appropriate for how you feel. And I want patients to understand, they look at lab results and they go, oh my gosh, I got all these things that are out of range. I'm like, right, that's good. That's your body telling you, hey, there's a problem and here's the likely places that, that are having the problem. So lab values can be t abnormal, but totally appropriate. And then the last piece of that is you can have abnormal lab values that are totally inappropriate. If you had somebody that came into your practice and said, I feel fantastic and their CRP was 40, uh, something's up there's a problem. And, you know, that's happened to me probably a couple, you know, probably a couple dozen times over the last 20 years where somebody said, Hey, I just want to do, I'm, I'm really healthy. I just want to check up, tell me, let's just run some labs, see what we got show. And we see something like a super high homocysteine or a super high, I think the highest CR, high sensitivity CRP I've seen so far is an 87. Whoa. And that's where you're calling the patient saying, hey, I don't care what you ha else you have to do today. You go, you'll go call your primary care. You go to his office and you need to go probably get an oncology assessment because there's something more sinister going on here. And so the challenge is I don't think that many physicians look at labs that way. I think they look at one value by itself. And really, we need to look at patterns of problems on labs, not one lab. One value doesn't tell you anything. You, we need to look for patterns. And we don't fix the problems by suppressing values because the lab value isn't the problem. It's the sign or the indicator of a problem. I feel like there's a um, something that I see for folks on um, thyroid medication is that there's this uh, trend from doctors to suppress TSH as low as possible. Like that, that's considered good, kind of ir irrespective of how the patient is feeling. What are your thoughts on that? Um, can I be blunt? Please. 
I think it's stupid. Okay, but I understand the thought process. There's been some papers that have said that since the thought, some people believe that TPO antibodies cause the damage to the thyroid gland, but literature shows that they don't cause much damage to the gland. Most of the damage is done by the infiltrating uh, immune system. But it's not the antibodies. The antibodies don't cause much damage at all. And so the thought process is if you believe the, the idea that TPO antibodies cause all the problem and if you need TPO enzyme to make T4 and T3, that if you suppress TSH as low as possible, the thyroid gland will no longer make thyroid hormone. Therefore, there's not much TPO antibody or TPO enzyme being used. And therefore, you won't have TPO antibodies. And if you don't have TPO antibodies, therefore, you won't have damage to the gland. The problem is, is that TPO antibodies don't cause most of the damage to the gland. It's the infiltrating thyroid, uh, lymphocytes and immune system that causes the problem. So that's problem one. Problem two is if you drive TSH really low, what's with T4? Let's just start with T4. Um, a couple things happen. One, the hypothalamus is a gland in your brain. It is what's monitoring the T4 in circulation. So if you take high dose T4, the hypothalamus is 10 times more sensitive to thyroid hormone than most of the peripheral tissues, you quickly drop TSH really low. When, T, when there's sufficient levels of T4 hitting the hypothalamus and you get T4 to T3 conversion, you get the deactivation of thyrotrophin releasing hormone, TRH. So there's less TRH going to the pituitary gland and therefore less TSH production. And so that sounds, that sounds fine though, right? Hey, if I have plenty of T4, I don't need TSH production. But when you do that, you also upregulate the sympathetic nervous system, which drives kind of that fight or flight response. A little bit of upregulation in the sympathetic nervous system might be good, but high push of T4 and uh, driving that TSH high can create some negative symptomatology. It can make somebody feel hyperthyroid despite being told you're hypothyroid. So they have insomnia, irritation, brain fog, uh, they can have uh, high histamine responses. Um, we know that the mast cells will degranulate in a hyperthyroid state in the brain, uh, which creates a lot of problems, especially brain fog, fatigue. And in the autistic community, we see high levels of that happening. Um, so the other piece to that is when you upregulate the sympathetic nervous system like that and you saturate the hypothalamus, you also send signals to the peripheral tissues that, hey, we are flooded with thyroid hormone. And so you get the deactivation of deiodinase 2 in the periphery. So deiodinase 2 is the hormone that deactivates or deiodinase 2 is the hormone that actually, or the enzyme that converts T4 to T3. And so when the the brain is sending out signals that, hey, we're flooded with thyroid hormone, that deiodinase 2 gets ubiquinated. Essentially, it turns off. So now you have a brain in hyperdrive, and now that same person with a really low TSH is now starting to feel more hypothyroid because their body is, those, those cells are deactivating the converting enzyme of T4 to T3. And so despite having a lot of T4 in the bloodstream, their cells are, are not able to convert it. So they'll start having weight gain, 
tired, fatigued, constipation, despite having a low TSH. And many times they're told they're just nuts because look, you're already anxious. I can see it based on your signs and symptoms. And it's probably that you're just crazy and you need, you're probably eating too much and you're probably depressed. And you know, then they wind up on other medications. The other piece to that is the pituitary job is taking, job is to produce TSH to tell the thyroid gland to make thyroid hormone and at how much and at what ratio. And so the pituitary gland is listening to signals from the hypothalamus saying, hey, do we have enough T4 in the bloodstream and circulation or do we not? But it's also monitoring the level of T3 in circulation. And there's a biologic priority to maintain T3 in the bloodstream. And so the pituitary gland, if there's sufficient levels of T4, but not sufficient levels of T3, the pituitary gland will fight to maintain TSH at higher levels because, and we don't know necessarily how it happens, but when there's low T4, the TSH signal from the pituitary gland drives the production of thyroid hormone T4 and T3 at about a 10 to 1 ratio T4 to T3. But when T4 is sufficient, but T3 is low, there's some, there's a different signal, even though it's TSH going to the thyroid gland, that signal is different. And the ratio of T4 to T3 drops to somewhere to five to one because the thyroid gland is saying, or the pituitary gland is saying, Hey, we need more T3 production. We've got enough T4, but we need more T3 production. And so by blasting the person with T4, you actually turn off the pituitary's ability to help continue to regulate T3 levels in circulation. And last piece of that, I don't mean to hog the time, but I think it's important to say this, is that your thyroid gland on a regular basis only makes about five micrograms of the total 30 micrograms of T3 that's made on a given day. Five micrograms typically from the thyroid gland, five micrograms from the liver, maybe and the kidney may be contributing to some of that, and 20 micrograms coming from all the other tissue. So your body, 25 of the 30 micrograms your body makes is not made by the thyroid gland in, normal, on, in a normal basis. It's made by the conversion in all the other peripheral tissues that convert T4 to T3. So they convert it, they use it, they dump it back out in the bloodstream so it can be used elsewhere. And so when somebody has tissue hypothyroidism due to some type of cell stress or cell danger response, they're not doing that T4 to T3 conversion. So their T3 tends to be low. And so their pituitary gland can sense that. And it's trying to keep TSH a little bit higher to keep sending that signal to the thyroid gland to say, hey, we still need, we have to help out. The tissues aren't doing it. We need more T3. And when we blast them with high dose T4, we negate that impact. So a common a common thank you for all that that was very thorough. I a common thing that I will see it's TSH within functional like optimal range functionally T4 same deal but low levels of free T3 and total T3. So in those cases I, this is kind of like a two part question. In those cases are you thinking about um primarily a conversion issue? That's number 1. And then number 2, I mean I think just for, for listeners, it would be so helpful to have you kind of break down this cellular issue versus tissue issue, almost like on like a fourth grade level to like really lock in what specifically you're saying here. Okay. So is it a conversion issue? Yeah. So if T4 is good, but T3 is low, then there's a conversion issue. Now, people take different takes on it. Some people say, well, I've got a gene 
that has a polymorphism of the deionase 2, so I don't have as, because I have this gene polymorphism, I don't convert it well. Well, I don't know if that's the case. If you got past, if you went through 30 years of your life and seemed to convert it fine, I don't know <laughs> if that polymorphism is the real issue here, right? But I think when they're not, people aren't doing well, they cling to that as like, like almost like MTHFR. <gasps> I've got MTHFR. I got, you know, no, who knows if that's really your issue, right? Everybody, almost every, you know, right. almost everybody I talk to has some level of MTHFR polymorphism. So um, maybe it's a role, but I don't think most of us would have developed the way we have if we had that problem from early on in life. Okay. Um, so there's a conversion issue. So what determines the conversion? Some people in functional medicine would say, well, it's a selenium deficiency or it's, or it's some other cofactor that's preventing the conversion of T4 to T3. Some, so we need to give more cofactors. Right, because that enzyme that you were talking about needs cofactors to run the show. So like, let's flood the system with all the cofactors and the enzyme will work perfectly fine. Right. Here's the problem with that theory. Deiodinase 1 is an enzyme that converts thyroid hormones. Deiodinase 2 is the main one that converts T4 to T3. Um, And then deiodinase 3 is the main enzyme that deactivates T4 to T3. If somebody has low T3 but upregulated reverse T3, it's the same enzyme with the same (laughs) cofactors, right? So that, to me, that argument doesn't hold water. Why are you giving that person all those cofactors? Well, because I want... um, I want to improve their conversion. They don't have good conversion. Well, doc, they need the same enzymes for the deactivating enzyme, which seems like it works perfectly fine. So, If if we're seeing reverse T3 being high. Right. Yeah. Right? So if reverse T3 was really low, then I would agree. Yeah. Maybe there's a problem with that deiodinase 2, deiodinase 3, and the cofactors are deficient. But if one's high and the other's low, that's not typically a cofactor deficiency. We have to remember, we put nutrition in, nutrients, micronutrients into the body and we say, I want it to do this. Well, guess what? You don't get to pick what the body or the cell does with that B6 or that selenium. The body determines, the cell determines what happens with those cofactors based on what's important to the cell, right? Totally. So we see people trying to like magnetically direct I'm giving you this and it's going to do this. That's great on paper, but selenium can do tons of different things and you don't get to choose. The body's going to use those micronutrients to help it with what is most important in the moment. Is it making building blocks? Is it making more hormone? Or is it important for use that selenium to support the deiodinase 3 to deactivate thyroid hormone? The cell determines, right? So, I think that key issue is there is a issue with the conversion, but our job, especially in functional medicine, is to say, okay, so the, I don't think the body makes that many mistakes. I look at that and say, okay, why would the cell want to deactivate and slow metabolism down? What's creating an excessive stress response? Let's take a look at this person's health. Let's take a look at this person's timeline. Let's look and see. Do they have dysbiosis? Do they have infections? Do they, have, do they, do they snore? 
and breathe through their mouth at night, creating chronic hypoxia? Do they have a lot of emotional stress? Have they had past trauma? What's driving these cells to be in a danger response? And that's where I think we need to put our time and attention. This isn't the job of the allopathic physician. This is our job to help the patient understand that that's really what's driving the process. And if we, that's what I do in my practice. I'm sure that's similar to what you do in your practice is to say, what's driving the cell stress and cell danger response? Let's reduce that or remove it as much as possible. And we don't have to try and try and manipulate the, the deidinases. They'll do what they're supposed to do. I love that. Yeah. And I completely agree with everything you just said. The other thing, you know, I'll talk about the cellular aspect of it in a second, but the other thing I think we see in functional medicine that I don't think is functional medicine, and I get some kickback from peers on this, like, okay, the patient's not converting T4 to T3 well, they're converting more of that T4 to reverse T3, and reverse T3 blocks the T3 nuclear receptors and the mitochondrial receptors, so therefore, we're just going to give them T3, and that'll fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's where I kind of shake my head. It all depends on what the person, what the problem is you're trying to solve. Are you trying to normalize the T3 in the bloodstream? If that's all you're trying to do, then yes, flooding the body with T3 can normalize T3 in the bloodstream. But it oftentimes makes somebody hyperthyroid, and it often does the same thing. You have a honeymoon period, and then you need a stronger dose, and then you have a honeymoon period, and you need a stronger dose. You have a honeymoon period, and you get a stronger dose. A lot of people say, well, I feel better on T3. Listen, if you feel better on T3 and all your signs and symptoms go away, that's awesome. That's great. It's probably the right treatment. But that's not where I see most of the people that come to see me. The other problem with this functional medicine or integrative approach of saying, hey, if, if T3 is high, we'll give T3 because T3 blocks the receptors. It there's, no, there's like no scientific literature that shows that reverse T3 blocks T3 nuclear or mitochondrial receptors. It doesn't. We hear people say, well, T3 and reverse T3 are mirror images. They are not. If you look at the molecular structure, they are not mirror images. They're different. <laughs> Where did that okay? come from? I, think I don't I've know. Said that before too. <laughs> but they're not mirror images. One brings, I takes iodine off the inner iodine molecule. Uh, off the inner circle and one takes it off the uh, outer ring. They're not mirror images, but that's, we, we keep kind of puking up yeah. the same stuff over and over again and people keep repeating it. I, I learned that stuff early on as well. And it just, some of the stuff doesn't make sense. But the thought process is if that if I give T3, I'm lowering reverse T3. Well, yeah, if you flood the body with T3, there and there's less T4 in the system, guess what? You can't make reverse T3. But that doesn't mean you fix the problem. The other issue is the same enzyme that was deactivating T4, if it's still up regularly because of a cell stress response and it didn't want T4, guess what else it doesn't want? It doesn't want the T3. The same enzymes deactivating the T3, but it deactivates it to one of a couple forms of T2, and we don't measure T2. So what gets measured gets managed, or what doesn't get measured doesn't need to be managed, and we don't see that that same hormone, that, that T3 that we're providing, is getting deactivated as well. Now, the issue with T3 is that why is it a little bit better? Because T3 metabolizes to T2, and there is some T2 meta- forms that actually can 
have function at the mitochondria. So, and some people argue that some of the forms of T2 may have more of an impact on the mitochondrial function, um, but it's almost like a backup battery. Hey, we're slowing down metabolism, we're breaking down T4, T3, but the good news is we got this little generator in the back. We'll deactivate some of this T2 to something that can still kind of keep us in, in backup mode, still a little bit run the mitochondria, still some, run some of these processes, but overall we need to decrease the oxidative stress and the metabolism of the cell. You okay with that? Totally. Okay. And I think the other question was just was this, what? this cell cell issue versus tissue issue. Okay. So cell and tissue, cellular versus tissue hypothyroidism, they're essentially the same thing. Cells, there's lots of cells that make up a tissue. So when I talk about cellular hypothyroidism or tissue hypothyroidism, it's really the same thing. I've got the cells if I have one cell and that's the only cell that's having a hypothyroid state, you're probably not going to notice the difference. But when a lot of cells in a tissue, let's say your liver, let's say your gut, let's say your pancreas, um, starts to have a excessive stress response, thyroid hormone is going to be downregulated. And when a lot of those tissues start to get downregulated, that's when we typically see signs and symptoms in that tissue. And that's the problem is that sometimes people say, well, I have these symptoms. I don't have those symptoms. So do I really have hypothyroidism? Yeah. But it's not a gland issue. It's a specific, it's certain tissues can be impacted of, away from other tissues because all the tissues have a, an ability to regulate their own thyroid hormone, to regulate their own metabolism independent of all the other tissues and the amount of thyroid hormone in the bloodstream. And that's critically important because you don't want everything upregulated at the same time. Because if everything had to be upregulated at the same time, right? Okay, we need increased metabolism. I got to run from the tiger. Then we'd be shitting ourselves, right? And puking <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, we'd have a hard on while we're running from the tiger, right? I'm sorry. That's probably, uh, you'll have to. I will not. I will not edit that out, Eric. But, I will not. But, I'm leaving it. But you know what I'm saying? You, we have to be able to say, hey, I'm running from the tiger. Turn off metabolism. Turn off sex hormones. You know, consolidate energy. Turn off the processes that aren't important. Push it to the thing that's most important. Light up the brain. Light up those muscles. Make fast energy. We don't need those mitochondria right now. We're going to go through glycolysis. We're going to make, we're going to go through lactic acid production, Cori cycle. We're going to generate fast energy. We don't have time for that mitochondrial nonsense. We're going to go through alternative pathways to generate energy. We're not burning fat in those states. We're, gen we're making fast, quick glucose. And so the body can slow down some of those things that are more efficient like fat metabolism and slow down the amount of mitochondria because we just need real specific high intense energy production in those stress states. But that's the state most of us are living in. We're not living in this kumbaya feel, you know, everything's super cool and fun. Most people are living at chronic state of stress, excessive stress. And so your approach is to really kind of pinpoint where those specific stresses are coming in per patient and address those things. And does that get people results? Yeah. Crazy enough, it does. So the issue is, is it, you know, everybody, I get people calling and say, okay, um, somebody told me to come see you. You had success with them. Like, what supplement do I need to add to fix my thyroid physiology? You know, that's like usually the beginning of the conversation. I'm like, you don't need another hormone. You're already taking 17. You don't need another hormone. You don't need another medication. You don't need another supplementation. What we need to do is address your diet. We need to address 
your sleep cycles. We need to address your breathing. We need, let's talk about your emotional stress. Let's talk about past trauma. Let's talk about your habits that you do on it every, every day. Let's talk about your exercise routine. And, you know, like for me, I developed Hashimoto's not because it's on the surface, it looked like I was doing a lot of wrong things. I was training for triathlons. You know, I'm a, I'm, I have a I had a busy practice. I'm coaching my kids sports. I'm doing a number of other things, you know, and I'm, I'm tough, right? So, you know, training, you know, three, three hours in a day, but only getting about four hours of sleep and doing that day after day, year after year, guess what happens? It's excessive, even though it's exercise. And some of my athletes um, are some of the un, most unhealthy people metabolically. They look fantastic, but they're the most unhealthy people that I wind up working with because they associate doing, I eat good and I exercise all the time with being healthy and there's so much more to it, right? And then the other thing we take a look at is, okay, what systems have been compromised? You got a gut problem. Almost everything has to go in through the gut and come out through the gut. So you can't have health and have really lousy gut physiology. So we have to look at the systems that are compromised and then start to work on help nurturing them back to optimal health. I have one one question. You had touched upon it really uh, briefly, and it was the connection between insulin and T3. And you know, blood sugar is just so wildly important when it comes to this. Can you just uh, explain that a little bit further? Yeah, so you have a bunch of these things called glucose transporters, okay? And so you have a cell, and glucose we get from our diet, right? We break food down into these little glucose molecules, uh, sugar molecules, and that's our like a that's one of the prime drivers of energy in the body. And so to get glucose into a cell, whether you're in a fed state or a fasted state, requires glucose transporters. But interestingly enough, all the glucose transporters require T3 inside the cell for them to work appropriately. So in a fed state, we have lots of glucose in that enters the bloodstream. And so the body needs a little bit of help to kind of push this extra glucose into the cell. And so the pancreas releases insulin, which then helps kind of push more. It's like opening extra doors at the mall to get everybody in, right? Instead of one small door, we've got lots of doors. We can push a lot of, of glucose into the cell. But glucose for transporters require T3 inside the cell for them to work appropriately. In a fasted state where there is, uh, you, you haven't eaten, glucose still needs to be made. Glucose still needs to get into the cell. And in those states, typically we have lower levels of insulin, we should have lower levels of insulin circulation, and the non-glucose dependent transporters, GLUT1, GLUT2, GLUT3, GLUT5, you know, there's a bunch of them, they all require T3 in the cell. And so anybody who's got a level of insulin resistance likely has a level of tissue or cellular hypothyroidism going on. We talk about eat less carbohydrates, eat less sugar, but we have to ask the question, why do two people who eat the same load of carbohydrates, one gets fat, one does not? Probably because of an already excessive level of cell stress already on the cell. Now, there's lots of other options, right? This person exercises more, they can, they're using more glucose, but at the end of the day, why do two people with a fairly similar diet, you know, you see people, I'm sure you know 
two people who eat twice as much as you, one's heavier than you, one's super skinny, right? What's the difference? Same amount of sugar. Uh, it really probably is the level of stress on the cell. Does the cell want more glucose or does it not? If there's a bacteria or virus inside the cell or if there's a problem inside the cell, we don't want to bring more glucose into that cell. That's not part of, you know, the cell danger response is actually trying to say, hey, don't bring more materials in here for a threat to use. Wall this thing off. Don't allow it in. Now, if you make more insulin, you can jam it in there. You can force it in there, but that's not really what the cells and tissues want. So when, so when I hear people talking about insulin resistance and blood sugar, and they're talking about, you know, you got to exercise more. I think that exercise is critically important. You can, you got to cut your carbs down. I, I think you have to ask the other question. What else is going on here that may be causing the cells to not want the glucose? And if I see an impact that somebody's got inflammation, they've got indications of cellular hypothyroidism and they're insulin resistant, that insulin resistance is part of that cell stress or cell danger response. Less carbohydrates may not fix it. You've probably seen your patient in your practice people who eat very little carbohydrates and yet their fasting glucose is high and their insulin's higher. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're coming up in an hour here. I can't believe it. Um, so I don't want to take up all of your Friday. That was an awesome conversation. It gave us a lot to think about. I would love to hear a little bit more about your book. It's called The Thyroid Debacle. <laughs> I think we can start to understand why you named it that just based on this conversation. But can you tell listeners where they can find the book, where they can find more from you? Because you're talking about this stuff all the time. Yeah, so good and bad. So this book project has been a long thing coming. Um, <laughs> It's not out yet. So I know a lot of people say, when's the book out? Where's it at? When's it coming? We went through some challenges with COVID and changing publishers and, and wind up kind of taking it back. And now we've got another uh, publisher. But matter of fact, when I finish, uh, I got one more podcast to do today. And then I'm finishing up just kind of doing some things to clean up to send off to my newest publisher to get it done. This has been a labor of love and it's been a labor of frustration. And uh, if I had to do it all over, I'd write a different book. But uh, at some point you just abandon what it is. But the longer the project drags out, this is the, this is the funny thing, right? The longer the project dra drags out and the more you learn and the more you study, you start to want to go back and keep rewriting stuff. And at some point you have to just stop. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I know you're a lot like me. You're digging. You're looking for answers. You're not you, you kind of the contrarian at times like, uh, I don't know if that's right. Right. Let me I, I know everybody's talking about that, but I don't know if that's right. Um, so but I'm always reading. I'm, I'm always reading papers, kind of trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, and so it changes my thought process and opinion. I'm still pretty inclined to believe that where how I think of thyroid physiology is pretty consistent with what I see in my practice are there you know maybe there's other options but I I just see that this make to me makes the most sense other people may look at what I say and say this guy's nuts but I'm typically backing up with what I'm saying with plenty of literature and research um, to say hey look this is what this paper says this is what this is where I'm, this is how I'm, I'm putting these pieces together. The issue is that it's not often, it's, you know, 
you read five papers and you pull pieces out of each one and connect the dots, which is I don't think what happens very often. Even the literature, somebody does like a literature review, all they're doing is rehashing what 10 people already said instead of saying, all right, let's kind of pull all the pieces here and see what's really going on. They're just re, they're just puking out more stuff. I like to read those papers and, and try and look at those things with an eye like, I don't know, is that right? What does this paper say? Maybe on a totally different from a totally different vein and try and pull the pieces together. So, you know, it makes it tough when you're trying to do a book because you want to keep making it the best you can. And at some point you just got to get it done. So that's the phase I'm at right now. It's going to be a great book. And in the meantime, it really, it's going to be good. And I just, just to, just to kind of like validate what you're saying, listen, if, if, if the way that we were doing things worked really well for a lot of people, then cool, let's keep doing it this way. That's not the case, right? So we need people like you to be like, hey, let's scrap this model and like kind of come up with a new one that actually works, even if it's different, even if it's different than like the current zeitgeist. So I do really, really appreciate that. In the meantime, while folks are waiting for your book, you have a, you have a podcast, you have, you you know, you're on YouTube as well. So there's lots of places to get access to the information that you're putting out there about the thyroid. Yeah, I have a thyroid answers podcast. Matter of fact, we, we were going to have you on as a guest and you had to go on vacation or something. And a, yeah, it was a real so, shit show, Eric. I'm, gonna so, <laughs> I'm circling back around to you on that. Sorry. <laughs> but we'll, we, we'll get that organized. But on the thyroid answers podcast, we talk about this stuff that sometimes is a bit controversial, but trying to give people the answers, like why is my T4 not working? Why is my T3 not working? What is thyroiditis? Why does, how come I didn't want gluten-free and it doesn't work? And we try and talk about all the things, but the common theme is looking at thyroid physiology from a different perspective, a different lens. And when you look at it from the lens that I'm trying to get people to look at it from, it's it opens their eyes to say, okay, I'm not doomed. My immune system's not killing me. I'm not, it's not like my body's broken, but my body's adapting. I just need to figure out what it's trying to adapt to and address it, right? And so that's the focus of the Thyroid Answers podcast. And, you know, it's been great to see, I mean, I'm sure you see this too, that you see people from like all over the world listening to your podcast and you're like, Really? That area of Russia? <laughs> right? Right? Uh, like Sri Lanka? Where is that? I got to go check out where Sri Lanka is. Right? And so it's really neat to see. Um, and I get a lot of great comments from people about, hey, it's so, it's so good. It's a different it's a different take on what's going on. Or you're talking about things that nobody else is talking about. I think I'm just trying to bring different thoughts and opinions together. You know, sometimes I don't always agree with the guests that I have on. And I, I'm always open to have guests that are willing to have a little bit of a conversation or debate because I may not be right. Many times I'm not. But that's how we learn, right? If somebody's, if you have a, a good viewpoint, but somebody else has a maybe a different viewpoint, maybe they are right. And maybe I need to be humble enough to listen. So that's why I really enjoy doing the podcast. And then I do my Thyroid Thursday videos they're on YouTube. They're always on Instagram um, and Facebook. I, I'm not much of a social media guy. Um, matter of fact, two years ago, I didn't even have an Instagram page. Um, and, you know, one of my staff convinced me that I needed to start putting, just put the information that I was talking about on Instagram. And that's turned out to be uh, a really helpful thing for a lot of people. And it, I, now I really enjoy it. Um, so, yeah, you've, YouTube, Rejuvagen, 
uh, on Instagram, it's Dr. Eric Balcavage or Dr. Balcavage. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> and, I'm gonna uh, link to the appropriate. Link yeah, you do. You do notes. what? Yeah, I. You know what? I need a. I need a person like you have. I think it's. What is it? Rachel. Lauren. Lauren. I got a Lauren Ra and a Rachel. So I, that's what I need. I need one of those people to help organize all my all my other stuff for me. One day we'll have the discussion. How do I find a, a Lauren or a Rachel? Um, but anyway, yeah. So if somebody's interested in hearing more like this type of content, you know, look for me there. And I think there's enough stuff that I've put out that uh, you can get a, a really good handle on like what I'm trying to express. Okay, cool. Well, I think it's a good thing you're on Instagram because that's how I find you, found you. So it was good advice whoever Good. gave it to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.